You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ Family of Churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. Can everyone hear me okay? I'm not used to this uh, cordless mic, but it's exciting and it's new. And Amen. It's great to be together. Um, I'm going to try to raise this a little bit as I talk. Oh, that's too far. Um, uh, it's awesome to be together this morning. It's been a great, great service so far. Uh, like my dad said, my name is William Thorne. And um, uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak to you guys this morning. Uh, I'm very uh, grateful to be able to speak. I'm also really grateful for this church. Uh, this is where I, I grew up coming here. And so even just being in this building is kind of like flashbacks and memories and uh, and my mom's crying in the audience. <laughs> and, uh, but, but it is, it, it, I mean, this is where my spiritual foundation was laid. I used to sit right, you know, kind of the front right teens area, I think it is. Every, I think it still is. A great tradition that has been passed on from generation to generation. Um, but I'm also grateful that you guys take care of my parents. I know they need a lot of babysitting and a lot of help. And uh, so thank you. I came up here through the, uh, the teen ministry. I think we got some slides here, maybe. Do we? Maybe. There we go. Uh, that's an old picture. You might not be able to see much, but you see some maybe familiar faces. I think Cody's over here, hiding over there somewhere, little Cody. And uh, that, that's me. There's Joe Salippo with a mop on his head. And uh, Will Garcia there. He's here today, too. So kind of some familiar faces, maybe from uh, the past. But... Um, but I was in the teen ministry here in the West, and then I went to college at Virginia Tech, and uh, we won our bowl game yesterday. That was awesome. And, uh, and then I moved to Australia, and I've lived there for about three years now in Australia, and that's been uh, great. And I got married about a year ago. We just celebrated our one-year anniversary. My wife's here today. There's a picture of us, too. That's from our wedding. And uh, my wife's from Virginia, and if, uh, so we were just there for Christmas and, and got here. We'll be here for about a week. And, uh, but definitely excited to be able to speak to you guys. If you want more information on my life, please go to uh, Francis Thorne's Facebook page. You get pretty much hourly updates. Anything you want to know about her children, it's all there. Uh, but my wife and I, we lead the uh, south region of the Sydney Church of Christ, and we work with the teens ministry as well, and that's been awesome. And overall, the churches in Australia and the South Pacific are doing great. Um, when we first got to Sydney a few years ago in 2013, the church had about 175 members, and with the uh, Vercells and the Fontenots uh, leading the church there, uh, the church has now grown to over 250 in, in just three years. So that's been really great to be a part of that. Every ministry has been growing, the marrieds, the singles, the campus, uh, the teens. We've had nine teens baptized this year, so that's been great. Uh, and God has definitely been working in awesome ways. So please be praying for the churches I know it's kind of far away and kind of gets sometimes forgotten about because it's so far away. But, but you guys are kind of the closest American church, really, you know, so we should be connected. Um, feel free to come visit us whenever. Uh, but um, re- recently we went through the book of um, Nehemiah. In, uh, oh, there's the teens ministry in, in uh, Sydney. I'm in the back there. It's a great group. And um, amen. Uh, we, we recently went through Nehemiah. In Sydney, and so we're going to go through that uh, today. We're going to look at chapter six, and Nehemiah's um, 
a, a great book, and it tells the story of many of the Israelites returning from exile. And, uh, and then they, they, they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king of Assyria at the time, and he hears about the walls of Jerusalem, and he, and he cries out, and he says, Oh no, my, the city of my people is in ruin. I've got to go back and rebuild the walls. And so he, he asks uh, the, the king, and he says, Can I go back? And the, the king grants his request, and, uh, and, that's, and that's great. And he goes back, and then Nehemiah 6 is about halfway through the book. And so they've started rebuilding the walls, but they're not quite done yet. And uh, I think it's appropriate for us here today because God's worked in a lot of awesome ways in the West region over the years. The West Side Church, um, it was the West region when I was here, uh, over the years. But he's not quite done yet. And, and, and there's still more that God wants to do. God wants to finish the walls here in West L.A. So I think it's a, a great uh, chapter for us to look at today together. And so if you have a Bible, please turn it to Nehemiah 6. And we're going to read about the whole chapter of Nehemiah 6. So yeah, we'll, we'll read Nehemiah 6, 1 to 7, 3. Oh, well, sorry, that was loud. <laughs> uh, Nehemiah 6, one. It says, When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and that a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply, I am carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message and each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his assistant to me with the same message and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations and Geshem says it is true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. And therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king. I have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple. And let us close the temple doors, because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away? Should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, my God, because of what they have done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th day of Elu in 52 days. When our enemies heard about this, 
all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah and replies uh, from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him since he was son-in-law to Shechaniah, son of Era, and his son Jehoanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me the good deeds, his good deeds and then telling him what I said. And Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. After the wall had been rebuilt, I had set the doors in place. The gatekeepers, the musicians, the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people do. I said to them, The gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, while the gatekeepers are still on duty, and make them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint some residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. Amen. A lot of text there. We'll stop there. And, uh, uh, but a lot we can learn from that, and we'll have two points today from the text that can help us to imitate Nehemiah's faith and his hard work. And the first point this morning is strengthen my hands. Earlier in the book of Nehemiah, uh, Sambalat, this guy, and the other, the other Israelite opponents generally criticized the whole nation of Israel. But now the attacks start to get a little more personal. They start attacking Nehemiah himself. And, and they're trying to get him to compromise, to meet on a neutral plane. In verse 2, come, let's, let's meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. And the plain of Ono is one of the uh, villages here in between the border between uh, Jerusalem and the, the Judean territory and Samaria. And so... Uh, the purple is the area, area that the Israelites have resettled, and Samaria is to the north. So it's not, he's not trying to get him to meet deep in Samaritan territory, right? He's like, let, let's meet just right on the edge, right on the border, on the frigid, fringes. It's away from the busyness of the city. You know, Nehemiah has been working hard. That's kind of closer to the ocean. You get the nice sea breeze. He's like, come on, man, let's just, let's, let's, let's take a break from the work. That's me over here on one of the villages of the plain of Ono. You know, sounds kind of nice, the fresh sea breeze, a break from everything. And, and so they're doing whatever they can to get Nehemiah to compromise. And isn't this the same way that our enemy tries to get us to compromise? Just, just to meet on the fringes, not deep in Samaritan territory, that, that would obviously be wrong. You wouldn't want to go deep into enemy territory, but, but just right on the edges, right on the border. You know, I'm not going to commit adultery, but I'm, I'm, I'm just going to lust a little bit at work. I'm just going to flirt a little bit with my coworker, or just click on a few images. Not all the way. It's not the whole compromise, but, you know, it's the small compromises. It's not like I'm falling away, but I'm just kind of too busy to make it to midweek or to Bible talk or whatever it is. The reasons that we give ourselves to compromise. And our enemy loves it. Masking the consequences of sin by claiming small compromises with a pretty ribbon. And that's how I fall into sin in my life. You know, I grew up, like I said, I grew up here in Los Angeles and I came through the teens ministry. But at some point during high school, I started making small compromises 
with the decisions I made about how I was going to live my life. I started hanging out with my friends that weren't disciples and uh, put myself in compromising situations. And at first I kind of thought, it's not that bad because I'm not doing what they're doing. They're drinking and smoking and, and being immoral, but, but I'm not doing that, but I'm there, and it's not that bad until, you know, one small compromise leads to another small compromise, which leads to another small compromise. And over time, those smaller ones lead to bigger ones. And I became deceitful with my family and my friends, and I got into drunkenness and uh, drug abuse and lying and, and uh, just all sorts of sin and debauchery. And this went on for years through my time in college, and it led to depression and just lies and so much darkness in my heart. Uh, and just so much pain. It caused my family. It caused me. Um, but it, and, and you kind of think about that. Man, how does that happen? How does someone go from just an innocent teen to, to just, you know, living in, in drug addiction and, and lying about it? And, but it all starts with small compromises. You know, small decisions that we make and we think it's not that bad. I'm just going to meet on the edge. It's not that bad. And, and our enemy loves it. Satan loves it when we do that. You know, in, in his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis has a great quote. Um, he, he, he's writing as a, as a senior demon to a younger demon. And, he's, and he, so he's giving him advice. And so when it says the enemy, you'll see it's actually talking about God or Jesus. So it's kind of backwards. If you've read it, it's a great book. Uh, but what he says here is he says, You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, milestones, without signposts. Church, we have to stop falling for the lies that there are small sins. That it doesn't really matter if I small, tell a small lie here. It doesn't really matter if I don't read my Bible every day. Compromise will destroy everything we are trying to accomplish here. It will undermine everything God is trying to do in our lives. God is looking for a few good men and women who will stand up and say, I'm not going to buy into that lie anymore. I'm not going to buy into those small compromises. God is looking for a few good men and women. Let's be those men and women. And that's what Nehemiah does. In the text, Sambalit and the others are trying to get him to meet on the plain of Ono. And what does he do? He says, oh no, I'm not going to meet on the plane of oh no. And, and we need that same heart as, as we fight sin in our lives, saying oh no to compromise, saying oh no to small sins, saying oh no to towing the line. I'm not going anywhere near that. I'm not going to flirt with the border anymore. I'm going to stay as far away from the line as I can. Because it never stays on the line. It never stays on the line. That's why in Ephesians 5, when it says... You shouldn't have even a hint of sexual immorality and impurity or greed. 
and we think, wow, that's crazy. But why does it say that? Because there's no such thing as a hint of those things. A hint always leads to more. Small compromises always lead to bigger ones. Uh, Another great quote here. Thomas Watson said, A godly man will not go as far as he may, lest he go further than he should. Let's be the true disciples in Los Angeles that have strong hands in the face of compromise, taking stands that we're not even going to flirt with those lines. Uh, We'll close out this point with two practicals. Two things that help Nehemiah to withstand the temptation to compromise. And the first one is to focus on the work. Focus on the work. In verse 3, the reasoning he gives uh, Sambalit and these other guys for why he can't meet them, he says, I'm I'm busy. I'm carrying on a great project. I can't go down there. Why should the work stop? Well, I go down to meet you. And when when we're focused on building up God's kingdom, it's so much easier to withstand compromise. Uh, you know, the, the temptations to compromise, they're just easier to withstand when you're busy studying the Bible with somebody or, or discipling somebody or you're engaged in God's great work. It's easier to withstand those temptations. But sometimes when we don't have work to do, and, and then the temptations come, that's when it's so much easier to fall into them. And so we all got to make sure we're engaged in the great project that God has called us to here in Los Angeles. What part do you play in that great project? And the second practical, so first one, focus on the work. And secondly, pray for strong hands, not weak work. Um, you know, Nehemiah 6, 6 through 7, the Israelite enemies are trying to slander Nehemiah. And they send this open letter that states that he's committing treason, essentially. And in ancient times, when you would send a letter, it, it would be sealed. And so that only the person who it was meant for would open it. So if it was unsealed, and you hand it to somebody to pass on to somebody else, to pass on to somebody else, what's everyone going to do? They're going to read that letter. So he's spreading rumors. He's spreading gossip about Nehemiah. If that news gets back to the king that the guy you sent is trying to commit treason, what happens to Nehemiah? He gets killed, right? I mean, you don't commit treason and just get away with it. So it's pretty serious stuff. If I was in Nehemiah's shoes, what would I be praying for? God, please fix this situation. Change uh, change the situation. Stop the rumors. Get me out of this. But that's not what Nehemiah prays for. He prays for strong hands. But I prayed... Now strengthen my hands. And so we too need to pray for strong hands when we face challenging situations. Looking for stronger hands, not weaker work. We're most often tempted to compromise when we face hard situations. And so it's not wrong to pray for a changed situation. We all do that. We all pray for God to change certain situations. And amen, sometimes that's good. But maybe the challenging situations that you're facing right now is actually God trying to teach you something. And when we persevere and we pray for strong hands, we can learn so much. And God actually molds us, and we see incredible victories. You know, we have a few churches in Papua New Guinea. And uh, that's part of the South Pacific and Australia region. 
And uh, here's a little map of Papua New Guinea. And if you don't know where that is, well, you can maybe look it up on your phone or something. But there's a, that's kind of the tip top of Australia down there, the bottom part. Um, and, uh, and, and so we have a few churches there. The biggest one's in Port Moresby. And we, have few, we also have a few small churches in the highlands, um, of, which is, when you think, you know when Jesus says you're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth in Acts 1? I mean, the highlands of Papua New Guinea is kind of the ends of the earth. I mean, these brothers and sisters, they live off the land. They, they recently had a drought, which means, like, you know, we have a drought here, and we're like, oh, no, I can't shower for 20 minutes. I have to shower for 10. Or, when they have a drought, it's like we might die. You know, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty intense stuff. So, but the main church is here in Port Moresby, and there's about 75 brothers there. Um, and, and so we, we were trying to, we raised some money to, to, to build a water tank, a rain collecting tank for them, so they could have more fresh water. And, uh, and so we sent some brothers from Australia up, up there to kind of scope out the situation and actually buy some more land. And, um, and so you fly to Port Moresby, which is a few hours from Sydney. And then from Port Moresby, you fly to Mount Hagen, which is in the middle there. That's about a two-hour flight. And then from Mount Hagen, that's the foothills of the highlands. You drive, if you want to get to Gumini, which is where we have about 25 disciples, you have to drive six hours on a dirt road like super slow, up a mountain through the jungle. And uh, then you finally get there. And, uh, and so these, these brothers from Australia got up there, and uh, it's a long journey. And when they arrived, there's you know, some of the brothers and sisters waiting for them and welcoming them. But they also met this brother named Matthias. And there he is on the left there. Um, and, and he's your brother. These are all your brothers from Papua New Guinea. And he lives in Calvary. In Calvary, uh, we have about six disciples there. That's even more remote. And he, uh, when, when, the, when he heard that the brothers from Australia were coming to Gumini, he said, I got to go, go, go be there with them. I want to fellowship with them. I want to meet them. So he walked nine hours barefoot through the jungle to get to Gumini to, to meet these brothers and sisters from Australia. And all of a sudden, that six-hour car ride up a dirt road doesn't seem as bad. You know, and uh, but but if any brother has a reason to compromise, I mean, isn't it him? I mean, if any brother has a reason to excuse himself and say I'm a little bit tired this morning, isn't it him? When I heard about this brother, I man, I felt convicted. I mean, you know, we complain about having to drive 20 minutes to midweek or something, you know, and I wonder if we may be missing out on victories that we could be having in our character because we're too focused on praying for weaker work and praying for God to change our situation and whining about the, the, the weakest things instead of just praying, God, strengthen my hands. Give me the conviction to be like all the great men and women throughout the Bible have been and like our brothers in PNG are. You know, it's a great example for all of us to follow. Let's be inspired by that example. To have strong hands, to not compromise and look for weaker work, but to pray for strong hands. Our enemy's crafty. He, he's going to try to do everything he can to get us to compromise. Let's not give in to that. Amen. And second and finally here this morning, final point. I don't know how long I've been going, but amen. 
the second and final point is, should a man like me run away? Or should a woman like me run away? You know, we love those movies where, uh, the, you know, the, the bad guy kind of comes into town and everyone else kind of runs for the hills, but there's that one lone sheriff who kind of stands firm and says, I'm not going anywhere, and he, you know. <laughs> I can't think of a good example of a movie like that. Yeah, that one. Uh, or Star Wars or something, Force Awakens. I haven't seen it, but, you know, I don't know. You know, th- those kind of movies where there's the one guy who stands firm, and he's not, he's not going anywhere. He's unmoved. And that's kind of what happens here. And, and, you know, the first few attacks on Nehemiah don't work. He sees right through them to the rumors of sedition. He replies, you're making this up out of your head. So he gets, the enemy gets even more crafty. And later in the chapter, we learn that Tobiah has some marital connections to the nobles inside Jerusalem. So he decides to attack Nehemiah from within. And threats from within can sometimes be the hardest to recognize and deal with. Threats from, from among us. And so Tobiah uses these contacts inside Jerusalem and they send this guy Shemaiah to talk to Nehemiah. That's from uh, Shemaiah's Instagram. And, um, and Shemaiah, it's a real photo. Um, Shemaiah lies to Nehemiah and in the form of a prophecy he tells him, he says, men are coming to kill you. They're, by night they're coming to kill you. And, you know, that's kind of scary and you don't want to hear that ever. And uh, so, but he's, what he's trying to do is he's trying to get Nehemiah to go hide in the temple. He's saying, you've got to go into the temple so these guys can't come and kill you. And so Nehemiah is not a priest. So for him to enter the temple would, would go ag- directly against God's word. Uh, it would have been a desecration of the house of God. In Numbers 1, he's trying to, that's the temple. He's trying to get him to go into kind of the Holy of Holies area. But in Numbers 151, it says anyone who approaches it uh, is to be put to death referring to the, to the Holy of Holies and, and uh, you know, Numbers 18, 7. Anyone else who comes near the sanctuary is to be put to death. And, and there's many accounts of kind of these things happening. The scriptures are very clear. No one besides a Levite should enter. But by entering, Nehemiah could be saving his life. But he's not supposed to enter. But, but how can I lead God's people if I'm dead and... You know, and you can kind of see what, what Nehemiah is going through there a little bit. You know, what's going on in his mind. Um, and so Shemaiah is trying to, to, to deceive Nehemiah into sinning by using fear. And again, you can see how easy it would be to, to think that way. But I love Nehemiah's response in verse 11. Should a man like me run away? Should I go into the temple to save my life? There's just such disdain in his voice. You know, he's just indignant. Are you kidding me? Should I, I'm not going to go in there to save my life. Should a man like me be intimidated? I love it. He just has such conviction about what he believes. And we all need to ask ourselves this question. It's a yes or no question. Take five seconds and think about it. Should a man or woman like you run away because of fear. Should a man or woman like you compromise God's word because of fear? Hopefully, we can all shout a resounding no! No way! 
But maybe the reality is that a man like me would run away. You know, a woman like me would go into the temple to save my life. You know, and I, I think, wow, if I was in Nehemiah's shoes, what would I do? I probably would be running for the hills. Uh, so we need to deal with that. But it, but it really brings us to an important character trait that we have to possess as disciples of Jesus. And it's that following Jesus means moving ahead in spite of fear. It means that we obey God no matter what the consequences are. Uh, and there's so many great examples of this throughout Scripture, like Joseph in Genesis 39, when Potiphar's wife comes to him and says, sleep with me, and he says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And he runs out. And then, you know, or, or, or Jesus in Luke 13, some of the Pharisees uh, are, uh, come and they, they say, Jesus, you've got to get out of here. The, uh, uh, Herod wants to kill you. You've got to leave. And Jesus, Jesus responds and he says, you go and tell that fox I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I'm going to reach my goal. I must press on. There's no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. He's like, are you kidding me? I don't care if he thinks he's going to kill me. You go and tell that fox I'm not going to be intimidated. Or Paul in, in uh, Acts 21. And when the prophet Agabus comes to him, and, he, and, he, and you know, if you're familiar with the story, he grabs Paul's belt and he, and he ties up his hands and his feet. And he says, he says, in the same way, the owner of this belt will be bound and handed over to be killed. And, and, and so the, all the disciples in, in uh, I think they're in uh, Caesarea at this time, are saying, don't go, Paul. Don't go to Jerusalem. You've got to stop. And Paul says, Paul says uh, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm not ready only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Don't be sad. Don't be scared. I'm ready to die for Jesus. Should a man like me run away? Threats of danger will not stop my obedience to God. I will not be moved by fear. So many great examples throughout the scriptures. What about us today? How do we respond when we're in these situations at work or at school? How do we respond does a man like you run away? Or will you stand and fight no matter the consequences? You know, I appreciate so much the example of teen disciples. You know, they're a fearless bunch. Just being a disciple in high school takes courage, doesn't it? I mean, it just takes guts. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of great examples here in, in L.A. There's one sister in Sydney. There's a great example. Her name's Eugene. And she's a sister there. And uh, she was the only disciple in her high school. And so she said, okay, um, let's change that. <laughs> uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try to reach out to some of my friends. So she starts reaching out to her friends. One of her friends is named Cassie. And, and she reached out to this girl, Cassie. And Cassie's interested in seeking God. So Cassie studies the Bible. And she, she studies to, to baptism. And she says, I want to get baptized. So she talks to her parents. And they say, no way. You're not getting baptized. They're from a, like a traditional, I think, Buddhist background. And... Uh, uh, so they say, no, you're not doing it. And so, sorry. And so she says, okay, well, what am I supposed to do here? And, and so, but, but she didn't back down. She, kinda, she kept persevering with them. And, and, and a few months go by, just back and forth. I want to get baptized. No, I want to get baptized. No. And finally they said, okay, you can get baptized when you're 18. She was about 15 at the time. So she's like, okay, thanks. That doesn't, doesn't really do me a lot of good. 
But she kept persevering, and she kept, and she stayed faithful. And she, and a few more months passed by, and and uh, and uh, and then she she kept, you know, the back and forth again. I want to get baptized. No, you can't. And uh, she was living like a disciple. She she was trying to come to church. They would only let her to come to church like every other week, or not not even that often sometimes. And um, they were very restrictive. A few more months passed by, and they said, "Fine, you can you you can get baptized in uh, in a year." I think was the next step, and then. Again, a few more months passed by, okay, and they kind of kept inching it closer. They said, you can get baptized in, in November. And she was like, amen, and it was about September at the time, so she said, okay, on Halloween at midnight, we're doing it. And, uh, and they said, okay, that's kind of, we don't want to freak your parents out anymore. Let's, let's do it on the 1st of November. And so, but she said, I'm, on the 1st of November, I'm doing it. And in the meantime, her and Eugene, she's living like a disciple, they had started reaching out to their other friend, Teresa, and, uh, and Teresa started seeking God and studied the Bible. She wanted to get baptized, too. Her parents were less resistant. Uh, and so she said, I want to get baptized, too. And so on November 1st, both Teresa, or, both Teresa and Cassie got baptized. And there they are. There's a picture of them. And, uh, but, it, you know, I think it, it, it's, a great, it's a great example to me uh, of having this kind of heart not being swayed by fear. Both of them, really. Eugene, uh, for being that way at school. I mean, for not being swayed by what everyone else is doing in high school and for standing up and reaching out to her friends. But then also Cassie, for not, for not being swayed by her parents, for standing up and saying, this is what I want. This is what I believe. What about us? You know, another story. Uh, there's another brother, great story uh, from Australia. He's named Tony. He's this guy right here. Funny looking dude, and uh, <laughs> you might recognize this guy. This is Matthew Colbank. He was here in the teens ministry, and he uh, was, was uh, ba- baptized in Sydney or restored in Sydney. And um, but Tony, he, he was in the campus ministry, and he got baptized, and uh, things were great. And uh, for the first few months, and his, his dad's from Hong Kong, and uh, but he was studying in Australia at the time, and, and so he was fired up. And then about after six months, his dad kind of started asking questions. You know, who are these? brothers that you're talking about and uh you know he moved and he was living with some brothers and he was you know going to church and his dad was just pretty you know curious what's going on here and uh and tony tony you know was a faithful brother but then his dad at some point said you know what i you got to stop this what are you doing here you're, you're ruining your whole life like what's going on he said i'm not going to pay for your school anymore your university unless you move out and stop going to church you know and and tony's on a student visa so uh, that would mean either going back to Hong Kong if he doesn't have money for school, or it would mean getting a job, getting on a different visa. I mean, you know, he's a 19-year-old kid at this point. Like, think about what's going on in your mind there. Like, wow, you know. And, and so Tony was freaked out, but he, but he got advice, and he, and he was faithful, and he prayed. He said, what do I need to do? And, 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 and so we said, you know, you've got you to stand firm. And he stood firm, and he didn't, and he didn't back down. He said, no, Dad, Sorry. I, I, I want to be a disciple. I'm going to this church. I'm not moving out. And his dad said, you have until this date to decide. And, and, and so, again, it was just that back and forth. But Tony stayed firm and didn't back down. And then eventually his dad backed down because he saw Tony's conviction. He saw a man that said, I'm not going to be swayed by fear. I'm going to stand up for what I believe. That's a modern-day hero in the faith a man who was not swayed by possible outcomes or fear of what might happen. What about us today? You know, maybe you're here this morning and you've run away in the past and you're thinking, 
The answer is yes. You know, I am the kind of person that runs away. And you've been running from the... You've been running away from the challenges to be pure. You've been running away from your responsibility to be the best husband or wife you can be. You've been running away from being the best father or mother you be, the best disciple you can be. Whatever it is, let today be the day that you decide to change. You say, that's it. That's enough. I'm done running. I'm going to stand and fight. And we find a solution to all this in chapter 7. You know, in the beginning of 7... Nehemiah appoints some delegates to take over for him. He's about to leave and go back. So he appoints some people to take over for him. And the first guy he appoints, if you remember, is his brother. And that's kind of interesting, right? <laughs> some nepotism there. Uh, but, you know, the second guy he appoints, he says, I think I have a slide here, because he was a man of integrity and he feared God more than most people do. You know, when we truly fear God, We're not easily swayed by humans because we don't fear them in the same way. And what a great description that is. I mean, that's kind of what I want on my gravestone or something, right? I mean, he feared God more than most people do. I want to be described that way. You know, I'm sure we all do. Because it means that you don't make decisions based on what people think. You make decisions based on what God thinks. And, And that's the solution to all this, that if we really fear God more than most. We're not swayed by humans. We're not swayed by people's opinions or whatever happens here on earth because we really, truly fear God more than most. Let us be this way. We're disciples of Jesus, which means we don't back down because he didn't back down even to his death on the cross. Amen. So to close out, just a few one last thought here as we close out. In uh, Nehemiah 6.1, you know, it says that, <laughs> this is kind of a funny scripture. He says, we rebuilt the wall, not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. So it's kind of like, so there was a gap left in it. <laughs> but, but then in verse 15, you know, they finally do it. He says, so the wall was then completed on the 25th day of Elul and 52 days And so what has been neglected for 150 years was completed in 52 days under Nehemiah's leadership. And it's a great example of what God can accomplish through good leadership. That's a separate issue, really. But but now in in Nehemiah 6.16, if you look at that, even the Israelite enemies, they're the ones who start getting scared. They're trying to frighten the Israelites. Now they're the the ones who end up afraid. And the idea I want to close out on here is is for all of us to fill in the gaps. Fill in the gaps in our hearts. Fill in the gaps in the kingdom so that the great project God has called us to here in Los Angeles can be completed. You ever heard the phrase, you had one job? You know that phrase, you had had one job. And you couldn't, you know, like this, like, you had one job. Just write school on the ground. Or this one's kind of, you know, holiday themed. You had one job. You know, put the Christmas decorations in the right package. You know, it, it means you had one thing to do and you couldn't even do that right. And, uh, you know, in the same way, a wall has one job. I mean, protect the city. So a wall with gaps is just, it's pointless. 
I mean, you had one job. Well, don't have gaps, you know. And, and so that's kind of what Nehemiah is trying to correct. And in the same way, when the church has gaps in it, when we have gaps in our relationship with God, when we have gaps in our relationship with, relationships with one another, when we're not connected, when we have bitterness or we have issues, it undermines everything God is trying to accomplish when there's gaps in our walls and gaps in our hearts. So the final challenge for us today, stand in the gap so that we can complete the wall. I'm so grateful for the men and women who have come before us and, and who were willing to say, who said, here am I, send me. You know, people like the Galangs, I know they were here last week. You know, they, they stood in the gap here in the West region for a while. And then the call came to Hawaii, here am I, send me. I will stand in the gap. And, and I know you guys have some great people here, and, and Chaz and Olivia standing in the gap, and, and, and the Chows, and I don't really know all the people here, but I'm sure there's many more. But we need more and more of that in the church. People who are willing to stand in the gap, because our wall is not yet finished. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I urge you, ask the person who brought you to study the Bible. We all have a gap in our hearts and lives without God that only Jesus can fill. And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, how will you fill in the gaps in the church? What can you do? Be practical. Be specific. How can you stand in the gap? It's time to finish the wall. Don't be afraid. Don't back down. Let's stand up and fill in the gap. Thank you again for the opportunity to speak this morning. It's been, it's been great uh, to be together with you. I'm great, again, I'm so grateful for this church, and I know God will continue to work in awesome ways uh, here in the West Side. Uh, but let's learn from Nehemiah's example. And, uh, and, and never compromising, never backing down, and filling in the gaps. Amen. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.